There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about ice age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. It's an easy-reaching, fish-feeling, bait-jigging, hook-setting rod holder that'll leave you reeling from the feeling. The amount of energy needed to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude larger than is needed to produce it. I don't want to make fun of a store. Like, that's no fun. I want to make fun of an individual. Like, I want to hurt the feelings of a single human. And a guy runs in. He's like, guys, we got a boat that's sinking. We need all hands down on the dock. Good morning, degenerate anglers, and welcome to Bend, the fishing podcast that refuses to wear Crocs but has no problem using a Y-shaped stick to support its chunkin' rods. I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte, and, and straight up, I'm I'm actually offended right now. Oh, I'm, bullshit. No, I am. Don't tell me you, you wear Crocs. I you do. Like Crocs. I, I, you're 100% <laughs> right that I like Crocs, but that's that's not the issue. That's not what I'm pissed about. I'm pissed that you would make such a sweeping proclamation <laughs> On behalf of our shared like team podcast here, without any consultation, like that's no, that's I didn't run this for, by you. You I did didn't, not, I and just... and yes, I rocked the <laughs> hell out of some Crocs. In fact, in fact, I used to guide the guy who started Crocs. I am Team huh. Crocs all the way. Oh, so do you do you have Croc stock then? Since you know that guy? <laughs> I, I don't have stock. I didn't. He didn't. He never See, tipped you me blew with it. any stock. You blew it. Sadly, you should have got in on that early. Uh, look, I'm I'm not saying they're not comfy because I'm sure they are, but they're just to me they're just so goofy looking. But I did yeah. I did once yeah. own a pair I I owned a pair of Crocs flip flops and they were super comfy. But every time I wore them near water or on a boat, I'd like slip and blow my knee out. Oh like yeah, every single gonna... time, and I'm like I can't. <laughs> this is terrible. You're I you're spotted. They're not boat shoes, dude. They're not no. water shoes. You can't get them wet, or they turn into just like they're hyper lubricated uh, when they get wet. My I don't foot understand would slip within it if that makes yeah. sense. Like oh the, yeah, the the the, the flip flop wouldn't come off. My foot would just slide 
forward. I know exactly like, oh what my, you're saying. Oh, it's terrible. I, I have experienced it. I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that one point, and I don't care if they're goofy looking for the record. Like, I'm goofy looking most of the time, so my <laughs> footwear can totally match me. This is what I just I just quickly add about myself though, right? So my point is, if I'm going to wear some kind of like technical, tactical looking shoe like that, I need it to be good on the water. If I can't, if it has no like water shoes, like you don't. I'd wear them in the water. So if it has no value there, then it's just a then it's just no, a, no, like dude, it's they're not, not water shoes. You wear your water. They're what you put on afterwards to be comfortable. Okay. That's what they're for. All right, like all right. I did. I made the mistake of wearing them one time when I was guiding, and I I almost fell out of the boat and like lost my See? boat and lost clients. But I just never did that again. They're 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 the perfect sandals so long as you're not on the water. They're after the water sandals. Okay, but they're not sandals, they're clogs. Oh, come on. They're not sandals, they're clogs. Oh, I'm not going to whatever. Whatever. I'm not going to convince you the Crocs are like it's like barely a step above going to the grocery store in bedroom slippers. Like, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but look, for, I don't even I didn't even want to get off on the Crocs. I'm trying to I'm trying you to coach you into chunking sticks. Where are you on chunking sticks? <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. The chunking sticks. Uh, <laughs> Crocs make especially good chunking shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and while I won't soak bait in anything but the finest molded foam sandals. Uh, I'm not, I'm not actually that picky about what I use to hold my rod in place while I'm doing it. I, I usually just prop it up on some rocks, but I assume, I assume you have some fancy holders for your junk and sticks. Uh, well, I have, I have sand spikes for surf fishing, but not for freshwater chunking though. I recently, I debated, I was on Amazon. I was reading reviews. I debated buying a set of expensive holders just for this purpose. And then I, I, I came, I had them in the cart and then I came to the realization <laughs> that like God has provided all the free and perfectly functional rod holders a boy could ever need. So I, I didn't buy them. And that's that's just what I use. I mean, it's not something I do a ton and they, they work just fine. And I don't even know if you if you knew this about me, but did you did you know that I love chunking, like particularly oh. in freshwater? Oh yeah, that's just yes, we have had this conversation. I know this about you. You were <laughs> you're a you're a man of med you're a you're a polymath of angling. <laughs> Appreciate that. I've, like, I'm all in on aggressive angling. I'm all about fly fishing and messing with the coolest lures and such. But people who don't know this, I truly get just as excited about chunking for catfish or gar or, oh, yeah. or bowfin. And it, 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 it shocks a lot of people. And I don't mean that to say that they scoff at it, but rather it's just the style of fishing bores them to death. You know what I mean? Like I, I know mm -hmm. a ton of dudes that they're all about throwing frogs for bowfins, but the idea of sitting on a chunk for them has no appeal. Or even... Forget the chunks. Even just hanging a shiner under a bobber for bass or pickerel. Sometimes I am just in the mood to do it that way, and I think watching a bobber dip is fun as shit. Yeah i i can't I can't argue. There is there is a childhood joy of seeing a bobber twitch that I will never like. It is ingrained in my soul. Yeah, and, and I got no issue with chunking. Although that is definitely a term that I learned from you. I was thought of as cut bait fishing. That's but. Chunking Same rolls difference. off the tongue Same difference. much easier, <laughs> and it's it's not my it's not my go to. It's not my favorite way of fishing. But I've got I've got nothing against a good soak. I will right. post up with some cut bait for channel cats a couple times a season and have a great time. Fact is, I'm actually organizing my first cat fishing trip of the year right now with one of my best buddies and his son. Nice. I think I think it's a really fantastic way to either fish with kids or or get drunk near water and call it fishing. <laughs> That's what it, I think. Now, no, it, it's good for both of those things. That's fair. But I, I also think people assume you just like huck a gob of bait anywhere 
and wait. And and that's no. that's so inaccurate. Like you still have to put your no. time in figuring out exactly where you should cast that bait and which baits I don't know work best at what time of year and so on. And and chunking or cut bait fishing is one of those things you can make it as complicated as you want. You know what I mean? And I mm-hmm. have always mm-hmm. enjoyed tweaking rigs and messing with different hook sizes. And I I don't care, man. Like when a catfish picks up a bait and that like that reel starts to click or a stick float stands up and starts running because there's a bowfin under it that just ate a, a shad chunk, I'm fired up. I love yeah. it. I really no, do. No, I, I I throw zero shade at that, and I can I can get behind that. My only question is: Do you do you happen to incorporate any wonderful thirteen fishing products into your chunking repertoire? Well, I sure do, Miles. And thanks for asking. <laughs> I've uh, I've used their saltwater line extensively to make sure my local bowfin population fears me. Uh, Omen Green spinning rod, mm. the heaviest action they make, to be specific, paired with the largest prototype X spinning reel they make. And if this all sounds like a shameless plug, uh, it is because we love thirteen fishing. We do. We actually yes. do. Uh, matter of fact, Bent is now proudly brought to you by the good people at 13 Fishing. Yes. I'm sure that you all have already seen Joe testing its merit in the last couple episodes of B-Side Fishing, uh, but probably not this week because it, it's a fly fishing episode this week with some pike. But yeah. generally, we got the 13 going and we love them. Yes, this is true. And 13 does not make a fly rod, but I'll, I'll say yet. Maybe someday. You never know, because those dudes are always busting out new badass designs. We can surprising hope. us. Yeah. Um, they also do not make rod holders, but if you're too <laughs> cool or too good to use a forked stick to chunk like I do, we have a recommendation for you this week. We actually do. That, that's mm-hmm. actually true. We're, uh, we're going we're gonna to switch gears. We're going to move into sail bin, where we make fun of dumb fishing shit people are selling in online classifieds, and point you to a product that will make you the Terminator. Of your local catfishing scene. Well, why did you put the head in the paper? You don't know what I'm getting at. Well, you you didn't have to be so hurtful with me, so angry. So today's sale bin item sort of bucks the norm for us here a bit, but it's just it's just too ridiculous not to highlight. And to to be completely honest, and I'm not trying to be that guy, okay, but I found this post probably more than a month ago. And Miles and I both agreed this is a must-do, but it often just takes us a while to sort of get caught up on potential sale bin items and bar nominations and such. And in, in the time since then and now, a bunch of you have also forwarded this one along, and we thank you, uh, but there, there, actually there are too many of you to, to give shout-outs, and technically I found it first, so. <laughs> Tough but fair. Tough but fair. And I could, I could vouch for the accuracy of that statement, because uh, a lot of you have written in, but Joe did find it first. But the, the reason that this particular one is unusual for us is that we tend to shy away from products that are they're like mass-produced yeah. or made to order. The fun of this for us is finding old, used, weird junk that some random person is trying to pawn off. Mm-hmm. For better or worse, though, Facebook now allows small-time <laughs> manufacturers that ship globally to sneak their products into the, the local marketplace pages. And for the most part, it's stupid stuff. Like, for example, the Chillin' Reel, which oh, was another God. one that a lot of you sent to us. Please. In case you missed it, the Chillin' Reel is a cheap-ass <laughs> beer koozie with, like, this little post on the side that you can wind fishing line around. Uh, I'm not even... That thing basically just makes fun of itself. We There's nothing for us to say. Totally. Yeah, like, I don't have... Yeah, we didn't have to tear that apart. Just, like, watch their own content. And yeah. And it's, it's, it's just... Yeah, exactly. Um... 
but and then doing so, it's also like it's essentially like if you're going to make fun of that or this thing today, it's like you're making fun of the store selling hard souvenirs on the boardwalk in Jersey. And I, I don't want to make fun of a store. Like that's no fun. I no. want to make fun of an individual. <laughs> like I want to hurt the feelings of a single human. <laughs> Not an entire operation. Um, anyway, I'm sure many of you have actually seen this by now, but we just couldn't stay away from the fish and chum rod holder. What's, what's with the, the, why are all the names the same? I hate that name, <laughs> the fish and chum, the chilling real. It, if you have an N in there, you're screaming yes. gimmick to me. Yes. It just, and all of these make me think of other stupid fishing gimmicks from the past. Like, for example, the laser lure. It, it, I feel mm-hmm. like there's 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 some kind of a cheesy backstory that you're going to tell me to try and get me to buy it. Hey, Bruce, uh, I wanted to ask you, what made you think of the laser lure? Well, the laser lure was actually an accident. It wasn't something I intended to invent. I used to own a gun store, and I had uh, lots of fish tanks. I got a new Glock with a laser on it, and I shined the Glock in the fish tank. Well, every fish would chase and bite that dot. They'd bite a rock or bite sand. But this isn't the laser lure. <laughs> and before <laughs> I get into why the marketing for this product is just so ridiculous. I, I I have to say, in fairness, the fish and chum could actually be useful. The concept it itself is not bad. Yep. So picture it's it's a plastic rod holder that's attached to a flat brace with long Velcro straps on each end. So it's it's basically just a portable and removable rod holder. You could strap it around a dock piling or strap it to a railing or strap it to an ice fishing bucket. You could you could put this in a lot of different places and it could be useful or at least moderately useful. But for some reason that useful attribute is not what the makers of the product <laughs> chose to promote. Uh no, not at all though. They're they're actually they're promoting it as a rod holder you could strap to your leg. Oh. And and in the key photo, the eye catcher if you will, you see the lower half of a man sitting on a bench on a dock and he has a fishing chum strapped to each calf with, with rods extending from both. Right. And I, I just find this to be so asinine. It's not even funny. Like unless you're an old man that will stay seated the entire day and will only need one rod. I just don't get it. And even at that, right. Why not strap the, the, the fishing chum to the arm of your lawn chair? Why not use a, a stick in the dirt? Like how much reaching effort is this really saving you, right? Now, thanks to a little internet sleuthing though, this here's what we learned. The fish and chum is actually not new. Nope. It's been around for at least a decade. And we know this because Miles found this total garage operation hack job infomercial that we assume was made by the original inventor. And it's it's gold, right? I wish we could yeah. play all two minutes and twenty seconds of this, but T- we're totally. not going to do that. You can look it up yourself if you want, but but here's the opening. Fish and chum fishing rod holder, a unique, fully adjustable leg mounted rod holder. Leg mounted. The holder portion is slotted to adjust for right or left leg, and the ball and cup arrangement locks it in at the desired angle. So we're guessing what happened is that someone rediscovered this product and either bought the patent or the patent was expired. They think they just resurrect it and, and make a quick buck. Yep. But it was terrible 10 years ago (laughs) and it's terrible now. And I hate to say it, but the first thing that popped into my head was Forrest Gump. (laughs) There's, there's, 
I just yeah, I have you to can't. admit this. That's, I, I'm dude, sorry. Yeah. The fish and chum looks just like the leg braces that little Forrest had to wear, and he's running, and there's the swelling music, and they fall apart, and the bullies <laughs> are chasing him. That's all I can think about. I was running. Uh, you think of Forrest Gump for some reason. I think of the Spears scene in Ace Ventura 2 when he's got one in each leg. <laughs> Everything about the marketing for this product makes me cringe. Everything about it is bad. Their website tagline, I'm not making this up. Their website tagline is, it's an easy reaching, fish feeling, bait jigging, hook setting, rod holder that'll leave you reeling from the feeling. No, no G's on the ends of those verbs. They're very anti-G at the fishing show. (laughs) Not one, but two exclamation marks to cap off that junk show of a sentence. The whole website for fish and chum is, is just chaos. It's just utter chaos. I'm intrigued by bait jigging. Like, what do you do? Like twerk on the dock? Like, no, how do that's you make the whole that thing. Work? You're, you're sitting there and it's strapped to your leg. You don't have to use your hands to jig. You just tap your foot. Oh man. You get a little mouth harp going and it's a whole thing. <laughs> I wish there was video of that. Well, dude, I mean, shit, if you scroll through all the photos in that post, they have one on a dude's leg that's sitting in a very small boat and there are coolers and seats and all kinds of shit surrounding him. So, yeah. Like, that's fine if you don't move from that exact position and orientation, but you reach over to grab your Mr. Pib, right, or twist around for the bag of dill pickle sunflower seeds, you got problems. Oh, dill pickle seeds. Good call. They are good. I'm not, that's, they're delicious. They're almost as good as barbecue. Um, But what you also have is an entire boat gunnel upon which rod holders (laughs) can be easily mounted. Like, that's pretty common. Like, when you have a boat, you fish, put, Uh so- it just makes no sense. It's like we it's we are we are all now dumber for having been exposed to this and may God have mercy on our souls. That's how nice, bad nicely done. this is. Yeah. I really hope none of you bought this and are patiently waiting for it to arrive because we've kind of crushed your soul, but come on. <laughs> Let's think about this. Remember those little little holders that you could put on your your belt to hold your rod for re-rigging? Yeah, my those dad ne- had one, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you don't, that's cuz no one did cuz they never took off. <laughs> No one had those. Some people saw them were like, hmm, maybe, but no, no one bought one. And why anyone <laughs> thinks this leg brace holder is a good idea, I, I, I don't know. But I've been wrong about lots of things before, and maybe they'll sell millions, and I'll have to admit how wrong I am. I don't know. Who knows? But thanks again to everyone who sent this our way, even, even though Joe did technically find it first. And as you guys continue finding ridiculous fishing shit for sale on your favorite online classified sites, do please keep sending those links to bent at themeateater.com. Now, see, that product, in my opinion, is just another one of those things that makes you that guy. That you know what guy. I mean? And fishing is it's it's full of such products, though they, they I don't know, they tend to come and go quickly. Um, like you remember you had the line cutters ring. That was always one of my favorites. One. I did not uh, have no, one. I do. I no, remember I, them well though. That's what I mean. I know you wouldn't have one, but you remember them. And I, I may I've, wear I've Crocs, seen... but I did not have the line cutter ring. <laughs> I've seen a few of them on fingers on the water and I'm like, ah, there's that guy. You know what I mean? There's like the dude. So he's the dude at the shitty park lake casting a, a, a lore with a water wolf camera in front of it. I'm like, ah, there he is. There's that guy. Uh, guarantee yeah. when that guy goes offshore, he brings some <laughs> zombie with him. Zombie. But, uh, <laughs> sure he does. <laughs> but there are other ways to be that guy in fishing that do not require oh, yeah. terrible gimmicky products. 
Uh, matter of fact, we're going to hear about one of them in a Smooth Moves segment with a unique twist. Normally, this is the part of the show where we let guides and captains tell us about idiotic things the clients have done. But when we called Jay Siemens, he said, hey, can I tell you guys a story about something dumb I did as a guide? And we were like, yes, yes, you can. Oh, yeah. Yes, and, you may. Uh, for those of you familiar with Jay on YouTube, He's incredibly knowledgeable, well-spoken, a uh, super thoughtful, put-together angler. So it was it was actually kind of refreshing to hear that he's not immune to complete screw-ups. Why did you do that? Why? Why did you do that, Terry? Oh, my God. Hanging out with us today in the Guide Shack, we got our friend Jay Siemens, who's uh, one of our North of the North of the border buddies that we don't get to see these days. Sadly. I know we miss you guys. I yeah. just miss, I, I want, I miss Canada. Man, we miss you too. Terribly. This is, we're, <laughs> no, we're, you don't. We're hurting without our American friends up here. Fishing lodges oh, are man. empty. Yeah. yeah. I, economically, I'm sure that's true, but from a, a traffic on the water standpoint, I bet it's kind of nice. <laughs> you're allowed to say it, Jamie. Like, yeah, it was badass. Like, you, you're you're allowed to say it. It's the fishing fine. was good. The fishing was good last summer. Yeah, I, I yeah. bet it was. Uh, we actually brought you here to to tell us a story, and and normally the smooth move story focuses on stupid things client do, but I think you're going to tell us something stupid that you personally have done. So we're going to switch it up a little bit. What do you got for us? <laughs> I've done lots of stupid things while guiding, but this one was <laughs> this one was in my first week of guiding actually, and I. I started guiding when I was 16, so I didn't even have my drivers. My parents had to drop me off at the fishing lodge, and, and I got boated up. And, <laughs> but that's a different part of the story. But anyways, it was, it was my first week of guiding, and um, we had portaged into a lake that was about an hour boat ride away from the lodge. And it had been raining all day, so we came back to the boat after a day of fishing, and there was a bunch of water in it. And with tiller boats, often when you pull the drain plug in the back, it pulls from the inside. So... If, the, if you don't have a bilge pump, then you just pull the plug and it'll drain as long as you're moving. Yeah. So we finished our day of fishing, awesome day of walleye fishing, hop back in the boat with my guests and it's, it's whatever, that hour boat ride, 45 minute boat ride back to the lodge and I pull the plug and it drains out perfectly and I'm like, okay, this is great. Get back, get back to camp, tie the boat up and uh, go up to the dining hall and I'm eating with all the other guides and talking about our day and a guide runs in. He's like, guys, we got a boat that's sinking. We need all hands down on the dock and I'm just like, Oh my goodness. I, I wonder whose boat it is. I wonder what happened. I'm feeling so awful for whoever, whoever this is. Like, I don't know what went wrong. So I'm just like, I'm genuinely concerned for whoever this is. And we start walking down to the dock and 16 year old Jay's heart just sinks. And I'm just like, that's that, that's my dock slip. That's, that's, there's no boat there. That's where my boat is supposed to be. And when I pulled the plug, I never put it back in. Oh, so there's all the senior guides standing around me there and they're like, okay, Jay, well, you got to put the plug back in the boat and we'll try to like use it as sub pump and pump it out. So I jump into the lake full clove and uh, I put the plug in and we're able to lift it up. Like just a bit of the cowling was showing and there's like tackle boxes floating and stuff. <laughs> oh man. So it was like, it was, oh under. yeah, it was, like, down, it down. was, yeah, it wasn't a good scene. And, uh, we got the boat up and feeling a little bit better and like, okay, Jay, it's time to go tell, uh, tell the owner. And I'm like, well, where is he right now? He's like, oh, he's having, having, dinner with his wife in the in the dining room so i go in there just dripping <laughs> wet looking like a wet rat and uh i went and told him what happened and i mean he he was so good about it but it was just like one of those stories and i don't even know how the the story spread but my first day of high school i come into gym class and the teacher's like jay so i heard you sunk a boat this summer can you tell the class <laughs> so just oh. instantly just the story spread and i had to tell everybody it now i'm telling 
the meat eater listeners and it's just like oh man so i sunk a boat <laughs> a few a few thoughts on that for one getting dropped off by your parents to guide is way cooler than getting dropped off to bus tables which is what my yep. parents are dropping me off to do yep. so good on that but also i think like Look, look, everybody knows there's like sort of like the whole like Canadians are so much nicer than people down here. <laughs> because if you were if that was like a lodge in Jersey, the reaction from the owner like would not have been the same. So so good on that too. For just like, okay, it's all right. I'm glad uh, he yeah, was I'm good about I'm just kind of that. amazed that you kept your job as a yeah. first year guide. Yeah, I'm surprised. I'm surprised I got hired back a second year, that's for sure. That wasn't the only mess up, but oh yeah. I heard they got the motor <laughs> running, they had to bring it to the shop and pump the water out and stuff, but they didn't have to buy a new motor, so that was a plus. Well, if it if it makes you feel better, I'll admit to having done the same thing to drain a live well on my boat uh, up on plane. It drained right out, and then I forgot about that, and then got a call the next day that my boat was listing. And, I'm, of course, I was two hours away from my boat, and I was like, well, just unlist it. Do what you got to do. Yeah. And they they like, yeah, but they, they caught it, but I know that pain. Oh, like, yeah. I know that pain. Yeah, it catches up on you quick. And now I feel superior to both of you because I'm the only one on this call who has <laughs> never sunk a boat. Good for me. Uh, thanks a lot, Jay. We appreciate you uh, humbling yourself in public for all of our entertainment. No problem. You can laugh at my expense. So my favorite part of that is when he said he felt so bad for the guy whose boat that sank. Oh, no. It's, it's, it, yeah, it's like, it's like, you know those announcements at Walmart? It's like, attention customers, if you're the owner of a Red Rav 4, License plate, and you're like, "Ooh, what's that about? What happened to the Rav? They're getting towed." And then one day, you're barely paying attention because you're debating which flavor of Kool Aid to buy for your catfish bait, and it's like, "Oh shit, that's they're talking about my truck." Yeah, drop everything and run. You know, Jay's response felt very Canadian to me. I don't mean that oh. in in a, in a dismissive or yeah. I hope not offensive <laughs> way. I, I think 16 year old boys in general are completely self centered. Mm-hmm. jerks and they're so generally insecure that they're quick to revel in anyone else's mistake because it deflects yeah. from their own screw-ups you yeah. know what i mean yeah and absolutely and i assume that most american 16 year olds in that situation would be thinking oh my god what a jackass what kind of dumb <laughs> guy seeks his own boat at the dock but their 16 year old jay is like oh gosh i sure <laughs> feel bad for that poor guy i hope his gear's okay like yeah I appreciate that. How, how many times have we said on this show, and I'm sure we're going to say it again, Canadians are just nicer than we are. That is fact. They are nicer. They're just better human beings. Gen- generally, I think that's true. I, generally, I do think that's true. But I, I think we're also wading into 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 to muddy waters here, and that's enough of the cultural stereotypes. Let's pull the plug on our current events live well and uh, see what's flopping around at the bottom. Grab the easiest targets. It's time for Fish News. Fish News! That escalated quickly. Okay, so we're uh, we're shaking it up a bit for news this week, kind of by listener request. So ever since um, Netflix documentary Seaspiracy has dropped, we have just been inundated, have we not, Miles, with people yeah. going, what is the deal with this? Have you boys seen this? And is this... Bullshit. So it took us time to uh, finally sit down and watch it, which we have. And, you know, Miles and I could just prattle on about this and, 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 and give our thoughts and our opinions. But I think it's fair to say it was an impactful enough documentary. Enough people are talking about it from all different angles that 
just having us blab on about it and say some funny things, it's not going to do it justice. We, we really wanted to take a deep dive into this, and I know a lot of you guys are, are interested in this. So, um, yeah, we're, I mean, we're going, look, we're going, I'm gonna, yeah, go ahead. I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but like we could, we could just give our semi informed, but not really deeply informed opinions. Yeah. But lots of that's kind of the problem that we see with the film itself. So rather than just recreating the issues going on, we, we dug into the, our deep, deep, deep bench of mediator in-house talent to help us kind of parse this out and, yep. and draw some conclusions. Yeah. So we're, we're not doing the multiple news story thing today. Our entire news is devoted to, to Seaspiracy. So it's not really a competition though. I challenge Phil at the end to weigh in on and tell us what his favorite shark is. Mm. Phil, that's what we want from you today. Um, and we, I'll, 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 and I'll, why, and why exactly. And I will, I will just say, and before we move along here that I was turned off as soon as the filmmaker in the beginning said he's always been fascinated by whales and dolphins, not like sharks and barracuda. So right then and there, I was like, I could just, I see where this is going. So um, we have some guests. Miles, who's joining us today? One of our esteemed editors and colleagues, Sam Lundgren. Sam's been on this show before and given us his his background. Sam actually has some experience working as a commercial fisherman. So Mm -hmm. Sam's got some unique perspective there. And we also have Stephen Klobuchar, who... If you pay attention to our, our our fishy content on the website, you will know that name because Stephen is one of our regular contributors. He's a postdoctoral candidate at the University of Alaska Fairbanks in in fisheries fisheries biology. Is that right, Stephen? Do I have that? Yes. Yep. So he he's going to come in from a and, and kind of look at the science and the facts there in ways that Joe and I just aren't qualified to do. So really excited to hear what you guys have to say, and then at the end we'll just have a conversation and see what comes up. Sam, please, the floor is yours. What, what do you have to say? What do you want us to know about Seaspiracy? Well, Miles, I think a lot of what you need to know about Seaspiracy comes in about the first minute. So literally a couple minutes into the film, the director and host, Ali Tabrizi, hits us with a motion graphic of a whale taking a giant watery dump, along with the following <laughs> statement. Quote, when whales and dolphins return to the surface to breathe, They fertilize tiny marine plants in the ocean called phytoplankton, which every year absorb four times the amount of carbon dioxide that the Amazon rainforest does and generates up to 85% of the oxygen we breathe. So in a world concerned with carbon and climate change, protecting these animals meant protecting the entire planet. The way I saw it was if dolphins and whales die, the ocean dies. And if the ocean dies, so do we end quote. So individual parts of that may be accurate. Plankton are plants, so they do absorb carbon and produce oxygen. Cetacean feces certainly fertilize these microscopic biocommunities, but they're hardly the only source of nutrients. However, Tabrizi's general bent and phrasing seems to imply that A plus B equals C, or that we are only able to live and breathe because of marine mammals, which Leaves the discerning viewer wondering what other information in this film is complete whale shit. Yeah, doesn't he drop a stat in there that 85% of the oxygen we breathe comes basically from, from whale dookie? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he does. Not the trees <laughs> or leaves or anything, just that, yeah. Uh, so it turns out there's a lot of information in here. And I'm, I'm going to let Stephen break down all the science shit here in a minute. But, you know, first, credit where credit is due. Seaspiracy does point out some real glaring issues with the health of our oceans, including climate change, pollution, plastic refuse, and overfishing. 
And then beyond overfishing, like it shows that there's real slavery and murder and piracy and just rape and pillage and awful shit on the high seas. And, you know, I knew a lot of that stuff. I imagine you guys did too. This has been receiving coverage forever, but it's also pretty isolated to like Eastern Africa and Southeast Asia in places that, you know, we as Americans don't have a lot of impact on. And, you know, if, if, if people didn't know about that stuff previously, then saw Seaspiracy and found out, then good. That's, that's great. It's, it's, it's helpful that people are learning these things, but like, you know, you should continue to educate yourself through real reputable publications, not <laughs> whatever that film was. So you're not saying that doesn't happen because it does in, in other countries, but he sort of framed it like this is the commercial fishing industry as a whole. Exactly. Exactly. Right. It paints with a really broad brush and, and I'll, I'll get into that in a minute, but you know, Ultimately, on, on, on the premise that Earth's oceans are not as healthy as they could be and that real action is needed to solve these crises, like Steve and I, we tend to agree with Seaspiracy. But the problem is, like, their, their conclusion is that we need to become vegan to solve all these problems. And on that, we, we tend to differ. And that's the essential problem with Seaspiracy. And for me and for a lot of other people, by the end, you realize that the whole point the, the whole film was designed to drive viewers toward an understanding that because of the poor health of our oceans, it is no longer ethical to eat fish at all or any other animal products for that matter. And here, here's another indicative comment about sustainable fisheries that comes towards the end of the film from uh, Dr. Richard Oppenlander, who is a dentist, an activist, and a vegan food producer. So he doesn't have any dog in this fight. Quote, <clears throat> They make it appear on paper as if eating, on one hand, sustainably produced salmon is better than killing a bluefin tuna and therefore creates a justification in the eyes of the consumer. But that's like essentially saying that it's more sustainable to shoot a polar bear than shooting a panda, when in reality, neither one is sustainable <laughs> and neither one is right to do, end quote. <laughs> oh, that scene. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Sam, but that scene, because you you the, they, like, the, have the, 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 the cartoon of each of those bears and like the red <laughs> blood come down over it. I'm yeah. Well, the front stat that I think we haven't mentioned yet, like what hits you very early on is they're suggesting what is it by 2048? If we if we keep going, there will literally be nothing left living in the ocean or, no, or or nothing that we can, we can, we can catch and feed ourselves with. Yeah. They, they, they like, they like that, that one a lot. And, uh, and Steven's got some stuff coming up for you about yeah. how that is complete uh, whale shit, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> but first, you know, I have to address the sustainable fisheries part and, and like, you know, this is completely anecdotal from my experience but at the same time, you know, it's American, American fisheries are managed based on science at the very least. You know, you can have your own definitions of sustainability and Stephen will discuss that. But I, I just want to tell everybody what I saw as a, as a commercial fisherman, as a young man working in Alaska. Now, I, I spent a good portion of my young adult life working on, on salmon um, boats or shooting polar bears. Um, if you follow follow Oppenlander's analogy, <laughs> and millions of them too, um, but I, you know I wasn't pressed into that service. I hustled my ass off to get that job. There was sure. nearly zero bycatch in our salmon scene, besides jellyfish, 
um, <laughs> which those populations are not like doing badly <laughs> in that area. And what few rockfish and uh, kelp greenlings and salmon sharks that did turn up in our seine were always turned back alive. Um, although that did get pretty rowdy uh, with salmon sharks a few times. Um, and, you know, they, they, they talk so much about how the biggest problem with commercial fishing is the abandoned nets, the abandoned waste that comes from it, that 50% of the, the plastic in the Great Pacific garbage patch is commercial fishing gear. But man, I don't know a single commercial fisherman in, in all my years living in Alaska who would abandon their $20,000 net that they'd spent years working on. You know, it's just, it's just no one would ever even think about that. I, I'm not saying that trash doesn't exist out there, but just for people who haven't seen it, the other argument they're making, we hear about microplastics and bottles and garbage, and basically they're trying to say none of that is really a problem at all. The majority of the plastic out there is discarded commercial fishing gear. So yeah, and what a step so, back. So we understand that. What a step back yeah. for like the environmental movement. And that was one of the most comical things in the film is how he went into all those uh, those nonprofits in California who are trying to reduce you know, single use plastics and stuff. And he's like, you're not doing anything. All your work is useless and garbage. And they're like, well, we're, we're trying to help. I don't know. It felt like he was really uh, backstabbing some natural allies he might've had. Well, what he was trying to say was that the reason they won't come out against nets is because they're all secretly backed by the commercial fishing industry. Right. And I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, you know, he didn't seem to offer a lot of a lot of real proof there, but you know maybe it, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But in terms of sustainable fisheries, you know every salmon we caught went straight from the net into a refrigerated seawater hold, and then at the end of the day we would deliver those fish out of our hold into a tender vessel where they also went into refrigerated seawater, and those tenders would run all night to processing facilities back into town. And I mean, and this is not like an unregulated frontier bonanza as commercial fishing is portrayed in the film. Like we listen to daily radio broadcasts from the Alaska department of fish and game regarding which areas would be open the next day. And, you know, and that was completely based on fish delivery port reports from the previous day and spotter plane observations. So ADF and G was always aware of how many fish are being caught, how many fish are coming into uh, Prince William Sound, and they also had a pretty a good idea like where those fish were going. So if there's certain basins that were under escaping, they would close massive areas around there so those creeks would get enough salmon coming back. And man, like I, I did a lot of exploring when I was up there, and I saw a lot of creeks that were so thick with salmon you could literally like if you wanted to walk across the creek on those on those fish. And then the bay in front of the creek would be filled with tens of thousands of more fish. And so just like the biomass up there was just incredible. And then, you know, the last summer I was up there, I, I was there for the largest pink salmon run in history ever recorded in Prince William Sound. Higher than it had ever been since they were measuring that kind of thing. And I mean, that's a pretty good sign of sustainability when you're actually getting more fish year after year. I mean, there's a lot of different factors at play here and not all salmon species are doing that well, but you know, it, it's something that I could feel proud of. And I think is indicative of how a lot of American and Canadian fisheries are managed um, that 
there's a lot of science, there's a lot of restraint and you, you can, you can expect a product that was harvested in a pretty conscientious manner, but you can't reasonably ex expect the same fishing practices from a lot of, a lot of the world. Like, and, 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 the, the stuff that's not labeled, like you really don't know. Like if you order a bucket of popcorn shrimp at Popeye's chicken, as I did and immediately regretted last weekend, <clears throat> it's likely that meat came from <laughs> unmanaged fishing or, or deleterious aquaculture, or maybe it didn't, but you can find out. You picked the, you picked the wrong dipping sauce because that's delicious. <laughs> just saying. Anyway. It was late at night. It was all they had left. <laughs> But you can find out in a lot of those situations through websites for the Marine Stewardship Council and the Monterey Bay Aquarium, um, which also include labels on a lot of fish products. But simpler still, in, in restaurants and at, at fish deli counters, like I would really encourage people to only purchase fish that was wild caught in America or Canada, because that's something I believe that you can feel good about. But best of all, you can just catch and eat the damn fish yourself, like we like to do. Well, of course. That's our overarching message here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I do think it is fair to note that if you look at a lot of, of Seaspiracy, like, he does not spend a lot of time on American boats. I mean, most of what they're showing you is practices in other countries. There's similarities on the East Coast here with the bluefin season, and bluefin play a large part in that. But these guys literally don't know any given day whether they'll be able to go tomorrow because it's so heavily monitored, and the quota is so heavily monitored that it can shut down at, at any, any point in the season. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 
After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire-charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. I was kind of intrigued, Miles, I'm sure you were too, by the amount of um, fact-checking data sources that popped up. And that's sort of a, a, little, a little trick to make your, your information sound more realistic and researched and throughout the entire valid. more valid right so throughout the entire documentary every fact that he puts up there's the very small hard to read source where that information came from and um steven i believe you've you've taken a little dive into you've broken down some of those uh those sources and 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 can enlighten us on some of those yes i have and i can't go into every single one of the claims but i think just touching on the couple main ones where they build the rest of their premise and argument off of the information that is wrong to begin with. Sure. Um, sure. So as, as, as Sam stated, you know, there's obviously issues with the world's ocean, um, but we really need to be aware of how those are presented. And so not going into anything that would be, you know, opinionated too much or anything, but the, big thing from this film is that they present no solution mm-hmm. rather than there's the one don't eat fish just, just no one <laughs> eating fish. this one solution stop eating yeah. fish yeah yeah and so yeah as sam mentioned you know eating u.s wild caught that's goes a long way along with other things but for me as a science-minded person you know i always go back to the data you know, what do the data tell us rather than just accepting a blanket statement with a very small sourced information in the corner that you can't read? And so once you start digging into the data, that's kind of where facets of the movie start to fall apart. Namely, that no fishing is sustainable or that there's no way to define sustainable fishing. And that all fish stocks in the ocean could collapse by 2048. Mm-hmm. So a large part of the film is based off these beliefs and it builds further lines of questions and investigation. But the problem is, and this goes to something that is referred to as Brandolini's law or the difficulty in refuting bullshit. So that law states. (laughs) Oh, I love this. I love this. Please. The amount of energy needed to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude larger than is needed to produce it. Love that. So the claims are not only wrong, so herein lays the problem. So front and center, that all fisheries would collapse by 2048. That is a myth. That is based on one small part 
of one much larger study in 2006. And that basically amounts to more or less a lazy extrapolation of data. So in that study, a small part of it, there is um, the researchers were looking at some recent catch numbers from a few declining fish populations at that time. And then they just extrapolate and draw the line out. Well, if you have a declining line, eventually that line is going to hit zero. Right. And this caused a big shitstorm in the fisheries world back then and beyond. And, and really, it was that big headline that was picked up by the media and spread throughout the news outlets. And so many other scientists refuted this claim and had the data to back it up. And so a couple of years later, after this, the authors and other scientists went back and forth. They came out with a new study in 2009, which included some of the same scientists from the study that was produced in 2006 that made that original claim. And those scientists, they looked at 166 fish, fish populations at the time and came to the conclusion that, you know, the ocean fish stocks are not on a path to total collapse. And they've actually been stable over the last 20 years. But once the bullshit gets out there, it's hard to get rid of. So over the last 15 years, again and again, the same idea that fisheries are going to collapse resurfaces. And it's a catchy headline and doom and gloom kind of thing. But it's just not true. Um, and so more recently, a 2020 study out of the University of Washington examined 882 fish stocks. So much more than the previous study in 2009 that refuted the claim. So even more data there to back up that in 2020, in that research, 78% of the fisheries that were considered even overfished in 2009 had improved. And mm -hmm. overall, 66% of the world's fisheries are not overfished. And that accounts for 80% of all seafood consumed. So there are regional issues. There's illegal harvest, human rights issues within the fishing industry. But by and large, managed fisheries are sustainable. And so there's a big difference between fisheries that are managed in the U.S. and areas where they're not managed in the high seas or developing countries. But it's been shown time and time again by the world's leading marine fisheries researchers. Fisheries can, in fact, be sustainable. In the film, the example that the European Commissioner for Maritime Affairs and Fisheries uses is a great analogy. Basically, that if you have some capital in the bank and you're only spending the interest gained off of that capital, you will be sustainable into perpetuity. Same idea when it comes to fisheries. As another argument against sustainable fisheries, filmmakers bring in the issue of fisheries bycatch. And as Sam mentioned, you know, it might not be as big of an issue. And it's, it certainly happens. And it's varying degrees and varying impacts depending on the situation. But the idea that 40% of all catch is thrown back as bycatch is incorrect. And that comes down to semantics again and one singular study that makes a claim. So the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. The widely accepted terminology and definition of bycatch is the total catch of non-target animals. Bycatch happens. But bycatch can either be used or turned back with no further harm or discarded 
and you know low levels of mortality. In 2009, there was a group of people working with some NGOs that decided that they were going to redefine the word bycatch. So it's not just the total catch of non-target animals. Those authors in that study used that bycatch is catch that is either unused or unmanaged. And so not to get too far in the weeds, but essentially, if there's a fishery that's unmanaged, all that fish would be considered bycatch for their gotcha. computation of data. Got it. Mm-hmm. Got it. That's an important piece of information when looking at those numbers. Yep. Right. And so yes, just as an example of that, you know, some of the information used to get to that 40%, it's information from a 19 from 1993 in a bottom trawl fishery in India, where there were some instances of illegal nets used. Hmm. In their regard to that, therefore, all the catch mm-hmm. from the bottom trawl fishing was considered bycatch. So it, it just conflates the numbers and discards bycatch. It's an unfortunate reality of the global food system, whether fishing or farming, there is some level of waste, but it's much more like 10% than 40%. But the idea that you know data from 1993 was relevant in two, was relevant in 2009, and is still relevant today, and that's a red flag in and of itself. <laughs> you know, and just as another example of that, you know, when they state that 250,000 sea turtles are killed in the U.S. annually, that's data from 2000. It may have been true to some degree at that point, but it's important because that spurred the development and advancement of fisheries. Oh, we have a problem. We're managed fisheries. Let's fix this problem. Right. So those fisheries have developed things called turtle excluder devices on their net. So more recently, turtle deaths are down 94% to only 4,600 annually. And turtle populations, by and large, are increasing. So, I mean, I've got a piece of paper that says I have a PhD, but I don't need that to tell you that (laughs) 4,000 is a little bit less than 250,000. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, look, I I think we have, there are a lot of ways, thanks to both of you guys, that we're able to refute some of the 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 quote unquote factual claims here. And, And I think that's important to parse out and to look at. But I gotta say, like personally, from from my perspective as as a journalist, as a writer, uh, my 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 main objection to this film is is the sophomoric approach that it takes to to storytelling, right? Like the analogy I have for this is that it reminds me of a ninety minute visual version of of a that the intro to college writing persuasive essay, you know, that we all had to write. <laughs> like so, the filmmaker picked a topic that he was like personally and emotionally invested in, and and he did some research. And he came to a sweeping and impassioned conclusion. And I'm familiar with this because I read a lot. I read a lot of these essays when I taught writing 101. And many of them spoke in uh, equal moral certainty about (laughs) the legalizing of marijuana and that being the answer to all of society's problems from social inequity to climate change. And kind of similar to those essays, I, there are seeds of ideas in here with which we all agree. I agree. You agree. Like all those things that Sam brought up, that Stephen brought up, uh, that many of us have brought up, they're major problems. And, and 
all of these are valid and need to be addressed and looked at and given some attention. We all agree with that. But to land on the conclusion that simply ceasing to eat all seafood is the answer to all of these problems and will create some global panacea, it it strikes me as just as erroneous as claiming that legal weed will make us the utopic states of America. I just, like, I see so many corollaries there, and it feels so similar to me. He he came in with with factoids that, like, are just so bizarre, but it's, like you say, the 101 style of essay writing, it's sort of like... Well, it'll help us. Just throw that in there too. Just throw that in there. Yeah. Just throw that in there. Like, like one of my favorites was that uh, fish moving throughout the water column constantly <laughs> yeah. regulates the temperature of the ocean. Yeah. So if there are no fish moving throughout the water column, now that is a, a big reason why the ocean is warming and we're having more hurricanes and all this stuff. Yet, like if if you know fish, and Stephen backed me up, but if you look at most ocean fisheries, it's all relatively inshore. Like very, like most most of the fish live pretty close to the continental shelves or or close to land. Like if you go out in the dead center of the Atlantic Ocean, like there's not a whole lot of stuff just swimming around out in the middle of the ocean. So that one just caught me as sort of like, really, man? Like you're gonna tell people that fish moving around in the ocean regulates the temperature of the ocean to the point where it will warm too much if they're not, it's just, (laughs) let's forget about the Gulf stream and weather and the Coriolis effect. Like, it's just like, yeah, dude, you know, the stripers swim up and down, it gets warmer and colder, you know? So I'm not even saying that there's not some like minor, like like itty bitty fact in there somewhere, but those were the kinds of things he just threw out as supportive of, of his claim. And it's like, what, what are you talking about, man? So I did a bunch of reading on elsewhere on this, and, and I'm gonna, I, I want to quote from this article that I found in Hakai Magazine, which I think does a really good job of summing up my personal perspective on this film. It was written by a guy named Josh Silberg, and, and he wrote, quote, In his search around the world for one villain behind all the ocean's ills, Tabrizi reduces a complex tangle of social, political, and environmental factors into one simple narrative. As he cues ominous music and tells stories and generalities, Tabrizi glosses over nuance. Though the film misleads viewers with oversimplified science, its real harm is that it ignores the history, culture, and systemic inequalities that are entwined with ocean conservation. The film is right that there are real problems in the ocean and have been for years, but Tabrizi seems to constantly be alluding to the fact that there is some cover-up. Right. That conspiracy mindset is a common theme throughout. And, and personally, I could not agree with, with Silberg more. And in that way, I think Seaspiracy is very much a product of our time, right? It, 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 it resonates to me with so much of our media that's, that's cloaked in this, this political theater, right? We're, we're inundated with these stories about clear and obvious heroes and, and villains and equally clear and obvious and simple solutions to our problems if not for some deeply entrenched and shady conspiratorial entity who's supposedly manipulating all of us behind the scenes to ruin our lives and our planet. But the problems are more complicated than that. That's just, there is that, that doesn't fit. Right. And so Soberg concludes his criticism by saying, had Tabrizi looked into any of these issues in greater depth, he'd have found that journalists have been covering these sorts of stories for years without glossing over the nuance. The point being for me personally, these these issues have been under scrutiny by experts and scientists and researchers and writers for a really long time. And what I want all of us to ask ourselves is what makes more sense? 
Does it seem more plausible that some 27-year-old with a camera and a love of whales and no actual training cracked some long-hidden vault of truths being suppressed a by a money, global I'm cabal? Sure. Right of governments and industry and conservation organizations and media outlets, they're all conspiring to kill the ocean for profit. Or does it make more sense that these are actually just really complicated problems and that many people are working their asses off to figure out viable solutions with a difficult set of constraints? I, I personally am going to go with the latter as making a hell of a lot more sense. Me too. Me too. Well, there, there's our Seaspiracy deep dive. We hope that that... Uh answered a bunch of questions for you guys and can't thank Sam and Steven enough for jumping in on that so that we had more informed things to say than what Miles and I would have come up with alone. Email us. You already have been. Let us know your thoughts. We're always happy to hear from you guys, bent at the mediator.com. And actually, what are we moving into next, Miles? I think Steven's going to help us out there too, in a way. Steven is going to help us there. We're, we're going to do a fin clips after this uh, on the Pike Minnow. And uh, I put that one together, but if you want to hear more about it and see more of Steven, go over to themedia.com and, and check him out. And then after, but we won't get there until after we hear from our illustrious engineer, Phil, about his favorite sharks and why. I'd say my favorite shark is probably the basking shark. Even though it's apparently pretty gentle and slow moving, the image of a feeding basking shark is a Lovecraftian nightmare. Its mouth looks like a portal, and swimming through it could take you through the cosmic layers of time and space and right to the great beast Cthulhu himself. And, you know, that could be a fun weekend activity for the whole family. Some years back, I got to spend a few weeks floating through the Grand Canyon. Once you get away from Lee's Ferry, the Colorado River isn't much of a destination fishery. You float the Grand to experience one of America's most stunning wilderness areas and to challenge yourself on some of the biggest white water in North America. Plus, you get to live, at least for a while, as a complete river rat. Once you push away from the bank and dive into the walls of the canyon, there's no going back. You have 200 river miles to cover with nothing but the supplies packed in your boats. It's the kind of self-sufficient adventure that's pretty much absent in the majority of our lives. A trip down the Grand should be on everyone's bucket list, but like I said, it's not usually a, a fishing trip. In fact, I was the only angler among our crew. I knew the opportunities to cast a line would be few, and the chances of catching fish in many places pretty slim, but I packed a couple travel rods in the bottom of my dry bag anyway. There are a handful of exceptional trout streams to feed the Grand, and I did pretty well hiking into a couple of them, but I can catch trout at home. The fish I really hoped to encounter, though I knew the odds were vanishingly slim, can grow over six feet long and weigh more than 80 pounds. It's the only native aquatic predator in its range, feeding primarily on other fish, but also rumored to take mice, birds, and even small rabbits, despite its lack of teeth. I'm talking about the Colorado pike minnow, the largest minnow in North America. Side note. I learned while researching this, they are not the largest minnow in the world, as I had previously thought. That distinction belongs to the giant barbed Catlocarpio siamensis, which lives in Southeast Asia and can go over 10 feet and almost 140 pounds. Maybe one day we'll do a fin clips on that strange-looking beast, but not today. Colorado pike minnows are only found in the Colorado River drainage and were once abundant throughout that system, which includes rivers in Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, Nevada, and California. Settlers, 
relied on pike minnows as food fish. And some reports claim that creative, or maybe just lazy, frontier anglers used horses to drag the massive fish from the water. At the time, they were known as white salmon because of their migratory spawning journeys. Though pike minnows don't go to sea, they would travel up to 200 miles to find optimal habitat in the spring. As the primary artery for the American Southwest, the Colorado River has been so dammed and dewatered that it hardly resembles the muscular river it once was. Pike minnows can no longer make those impressive runs to optimal reproductive habitat. Their home waters are now colder and more controlled, and they have new non-native competitors. Colorado pike minnows have been endangered since 1967, which is why my chances of actually catching one were minuscule. And I didn't. There are four distinct species of pike minnows in North America. Colorado, Umpqua, Sacramento, and Northern. Good news. The Colorado pike minnow is the only one that seems incapable of effectively adapting to life in a dammed river system. Bad news. The Northern pike minnow has proven itself so good at thriving in the reservoirs and slow-moving pools of the Columbia and Snake Rivers that they are harming salmon and steelhead populations. Northern pike minnows consume millions of juvenile salmon and steelhead each year, putting added stress on iconic fish that are already struggling. More bad news. Northern pike minnows only get about 10% as large as their Colorado counterparts, maxing out around 7 pounds, so they're not nearly as attractive a sport fish. But anglers who choose to target them can find value beyond their size. Since 1990, the Bonneville Power Administration and Pacific States Fisheries Commission have teamed up with Oregon and Washington's Departments of Fisheries to administer the Northern Pike Minnow Sport Reward Program. The program runs from May 1st to September 30th and pays anglers 5 to 8 bucks for every northern pike minnow they turn in over 9 inches, depending on the size. Some enterprising anglers are making real money fishing for northern pike minnows. The top 20 who participated in the program last year averaged over 20 grand, and one brought in nearly $50,000 in five months of fishing. For the record, that's far more than I ever made as a fishing guide in five months. Best of all, it seems to be proving effective since the sport reward program started putting bounties on northern pike minnows 30 years ago. More than 5 million fish have been culled from the system. And some reports indicate that the northern pike minnow predation on salmonids has decreased 40%. In a somewhat ironic twist, the Arizona Fish and Game Department is now offering bounties on salmonids to help protect pike minnows in the Colorado River. As Joe covered in Fish News a few months back, anglers fishing around Lee's Ferry, the same area where Grand Canyon raft trips begin, get $25 for every brown trout over 6 inches they bring to an area check station. Brown trout are not native to the Colorado, or anywhere on this continent for that matter, and aggressive browns can prey upon juvenile pike minnows and other endangered native fish in the Colorado system, like the humpback chub. So, while pike minnows are harming native salmonids in one fishery, salmonids are harming native pike minnows in another fishery. But in both cases, sport fishing is being leveraged as a tool to help the underdogs. While I'm not personally convinced that killing brown trout around Lee's Ferry will save Colorado pike minnows, that's just one of the tools that the Upper Colorado Endangered Fish Recovery Program is using to hopefully help boost pike minnow recruitment numbers. They're also requesting that Flaming Gorge Dam increase springtime releases to better mimic the historic seasonal flow cycle and help Colorado pike minnows successfully spawn more often. I can only hope that program works.
and that if my kid floats down the Grand Canyon when he's grown, he'll get to double over a rod on a musky-sized minnow. Man, it's a shame pike minnows are are critically endangered because they sound like they'd pull and eat pretty much anything. I want to catch one so, so bad. Sam Lundgren and I have this conversation like once a month. They have those fish have <laughs> all the attributes that that anglers love. Like if you just yeah. were to if you were to strip out the minnow part and just talk about them in general terms, like they get big, they they're they're the top of the food chain. They push around all the other fish in the river. They will yep. attack and kill like anything. And I've never caught one, right? But but I feel like any generic presentation that you could get in front of one, so long mm-hmm. as it vaguely looks edible and scared, would get munched. Yep. Actually, on that note, Joe's about to school us on an overlooked generic fish catcher that everyone should probably have on hand but doesn't. Even better, if you're looking to catch some of the finest catfish and bowfin bait you could possibly find on the Easter Seaboard, these lures will catch that too. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. In past end-of-the-line segments, I've said that it's often difficult to trace a lure's origin back any further than when it became mass-produced. But in the case of the shad dart, I can't even figure out when mass production really started because, in essence, it still isn't like a big seller. I mean, sure, you can find shad darts made by companies like Marathon and a few others on the shelves of big box stores. And there'll be two or three darts in one bubble pack, and you're most likely to find the color selection limited. They'll have red and white, maybe red and yellow, and perhaps chartreuse and dark green, because those are the classics. But for the vast majority of anglers that really rely on shad darts, they're not usually picking them up from the big box store. More likely, they pick them up from a local shop that works with a local dart maker who knows exactly which colors the local anglers and fish are hungry for. The only things really known about the shad darts' origins is that they first appeared in the Northeast well over 50 years ago, and since they hit the scene, they've predominantly been distributed by garage and basement dart makers. So what is a shad dart? Well, it's one of the cheapest, simplest, most effective lures you can own, yet most anglers that live outside of regions like the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic that have thriving cultures revolving around the annual spring runs of hickory and American shad don't own any. A shad dart is just a compact lead jig. They can weigh as little as 1 64th of an ounce and as much as a full ounce. They're cone-shaped, and the wider front end is sort of sliced off at an angle to create a sloping face. The hooks are molded right into the body, and the line tie-eye protrudes from the dart's back so the lure always falls and swims horizontally. Darts often have a tiny pinch of bucktail tied on the hook, but there could also be a little bit of synthetic flash material back there or no tail at all. Naked, as we say. It's the goofiest little lure, but it's actually a genius design. That wide-angled face is designed to create water resistance. When reeled across the current, water bounces and deflects off that face and gives the dart a unique shimmy. These days, flutter spoons have gotten very popular for shad, but as a kid, all my old man had on him for our annual trip to the Delaware Water Gap for shad was a box of darts. And all you did was cast at a slight angle up current and steadily reel the dart back. No jigging or finessing or twitching, just reel. And if it got in front of the shad, the rod would just load up when your line was right around 11 o'clock. 
For most of my life, I didn't think anyone used shad darts for anything but shad, but that wasn't the case. Matter of fact, research shows that in other parts of the country, they're more commonly referred to as crappie darts or quillbees. And if you think about it, the same action that attracts shad is beneficial in a plethora of other fisheries, especially considering a dart can also replace a jig head. I've tipped them with a piece of bloodworm to whack white perch. I've added a curly tail grub and used them to pick off some crappies. I even have a buddy that leans on simple shad darts for shallow water, light line flounder fishing by tipping them with a strip of squid or a live mud minnow. And much like a metal spoon, a dart is equally effective jigged vertically or when you swim it, which means the ears of any hardwater anglers listening right now should be perking up. So how many of you will heed my advice and mess with shad darts? I don't know, but I know a whole bunch of you discovered the power of the trout magnet, one of my all-time favorite lures for stock trout because of its inclusion in End of the Line. I was peppered with photos and notes of thanks after that segment, but just in case you haven't put all the pieces together yet, your stringers filled faster this season, not because of the little soft plastic trout magnet mealworm you were dangling, but because of its shad dart head. Leland Lore Company, who makes the trout magnet, actually have the ancient shad dart to thank for much of their success. They shrunk the dart down to micro size, harnessing the power of that angled head to make their lures dance, flit, and wiggle as they ride the current. So, if the dart plastic combo is so potent in micro form, imagine what you might achieve letting, I don't know, a soft plastic crayfish or helgramite pinned on a bigger dart slip down a juicy smallmouth run under a little bit bigger float. So that's it for this week. If you're going to be spending some time sitting on a bucket waiting for a little tap, tap, taparoo, we've <laughs> given you plenty to contemplate, like drain plugs and the human response to forgetting about them. A dart <laughs> you could probably stick in a pike minnow if they weren't nearly extinct. And the perfect accessory for the bait dunker that considers himself a leg man. <laughs> If you've got comments, concerns, salesman items, awkward photos, or bar nominations, go ahead and collect a bunch of Y-shaped sticks, set them on fire, and send us smoke signals. Or just email all that stuff to bent at themediator.com. Uh, don't forget, if you want a bent sticker pack from us, the quickest way for us to detect a nibble from you is to tag your shit Degenerate Angler or Bent Podcast on the gram. Hell, you may even be able to score one of those Billy Wants a Shotgun mm. stickers. Very soon. They, they, they just might be in the works. They very well could be. Uh, but until they're a real thing, Billy just wants you to keep dreaming about that flathead that could swallow a toddler you're certain lives at the base of the local dam. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about ice age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct 
a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit themeateater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. 